into the program, and she eventually became my sponsor and still is. Um, she's been very instrumental in my recovery and has provided um, an immense amount of compassion and love during my journey, and I'm just really grateful that our paths have crossed. Charlie originally came into the program as an Alateen 29 years ago and has been active in the program ever since, and her home group is Slogans of Serenity in New Orleans. We meet on Sunday nights at 7. Let's see. She's very active in service and has recently been part of us starting a Alateen meeting at the same time as our home group in Orleans Parish, so we're very excited about that. And then um, finally, I've heard her speak many times in the past, and she has an incredible story, and I think you're in for a great treat. So it's my pleasure to introduce Charlie. It's a big crowd. <laughs> um, it's a real pleasure to be here tonight. Um, I am always just kind of in awe of the, the diversity of people that show up for these events and the miracle that we're all here. Um, I, I often think about just how miraculous it is that people like you show up for people like me every day in this fellowship by putting a dollar in the basket, attending meetings, answering a call from a fellow in need, and sponsorship, you all give the friends and families of alcoholics comfort each and every day all over the world. And it's really an amazing service that you all provide. And I'm so grateful that you're here. When I got the call to speak at this convention, I was really excited by this concept of treasures of recovery. I didn't expect the little show that started it off, which made it even more exciting. And I was excited about it for two, you know, two reasons immediately struck me when I became aware of what the theme was. And the first was that it would be really easy to talk about this topic because of the number of invaluable gifts that I've experienced throughout my time in this program. And so it would just be simple, and that felt so good. And the second reason why I was really excited about this theme is because I knew immediately which reading I would open with because it's one of my favorites, but it also speaks so directly to the theme of this 40th Annual AFG Convention. So bear with me, because I'm going to open with a reading that many of you may be familiar with. But I think that every time that I read it, it really has a kind of calming and grounding effect on me. And I know that when it falls on our ears, it reminds, me, reminds us all of why we work so hard in this program. Because we're looking for something really amazing to happen through our recovery. So I'm reading from Survival to Recovery. And I'm starting on page 267. Trust does not come from reading the book. It comes from experiencing new relationships in which we are trusted and can learn to trust those around us. Al-Anon provides us with fine opportunities to join with others who, like us, have been hurt and betrayed. Though we are very fragile when we come to the program, we eventually manage to share our stories, as well as our experience, strength, and hope. Miraculously, we begin to heal. Personal contacts, meetings, 
meditation and prayer are all necessary. But also, we find that actively working all 12 steps of Al-Anon is essential. If we willingly surrender ourselves to the spiritual discipline of the 12 steps, our lives can be transformed. We can become mature, responsible individuals with a great capacity for joy, fulfillment, and wonder. Though we will never be perfect, continued spiritual progress can reveal to us our enormous potential. Many of us discover what our fellow members already know, that we are both worthy of love and loving. We learn to love others without losing ourselves, and we accept love in return. Our sight, once clouded and distorted, can clear enough for us to perceive reality and recognize truth. Courage and fellowship replace fear. It becomes possible for us to risk failure and develop new, previously hidden talents. Our lives, no matter how battered and degraded, will offer hope to share with others. We begin to feel and know the vastness of our emotions without being slaves to them. Our secrets no longer have to bind us in shame as we gain the ability to forgive ourselves, our families, and the world. Our choices expand. With, di- with dignity, we stand for ourselves without standing against others. Serenity and peace will have new meaning as we allow our lives and the lives of those we love to flow day by day with God's ease, balance, and grace. No longer terrified, we discover that we are free to delight in life's paradox, mystery, and awe. We laugh more. Faith replaces fear, and gratitude comes naturally as we realize that our higher power is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Can we really grow to such proportions? As we accept life as a continuing process of maturation and evolution towards wholeness, we gradually begin to notice these changes. We may see them first in those who walk beside us. Sometimes these changes happen slowly or haltingly and occasionally with great bursts of brilliance. As we work the steps, we move ever closer toward light, toward health, and toward the higher power of our understanding. As we watch others grow, we realize we are also changing. Will we ever arrive? (laughs) Will we feel joy all the time? Can we really be free of cruelty, tragedy, and injustice? Probably not. But we can acquire growing acceptance of our human fallibility as well as a greater love and tolerance for each other. Self-pity, resentment, rage, and depression can fade into memory. A sense of community rather than loneliness defines our lives. We come to know that we belong, we are welcome, we have something to contribute, and that is enough. So this reading is one that's been familiar to me really now for decades. And I remember that when I first heard it, I really thought that these, these things must not truly be attainable. Um, I know that when I'm asked to tell my story, I'm supposed to talk about 
um, kind of how it was before I came to the program, how I found the program, and how it is now. I really think that my story has a lot more to do with how I developed a relationship with a higher power of my understanding and how I became a part of a community that loves and supports me. Um, and it'll also be about those other things. <laughs> my qualifications to be a member of this program started long before I was born. To the best of my knowledge, I may have one biological relative who doesn't suffer from the disease of alcoholism. <laughs> I think there's a great aunt back there somewhere. But certainly all of my cousins, grandparents, parents, aunts, uncles, paternal and maternal, as well as every step-parent who's been involved along the way, suffered from this disease. Um, so there's no question that I belong in these rooms. <laughs> um, my parents met in, I'll start at the beginning, you know. <laughs> so my parents met in 1967, shortly after my half-brother was born. My father moved directly from his alcoholic family home into a college rental with my mother, her current husband, and my half-brother. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it sounds funny. <laughs> I don't know how funny it was. So, and then it gets funnier. So then my, my brother's father um, decided he would go to California. They were all in art school together in Ohio in this little town called Yellow Springs, Ohio at this incredible university, Antioch University. Um, so he decided he would go to California and he would get a job and then he would send for his wife and son. Well... He didn't. <laughs> um, but my dad really enjoyed being there and being a part of this family and having the opportunity to help care for my brother. And my parents made a decision that they would have another child, me. Um, and that they would raise my brother and I together. My childhood was non-traditional in many ways. If you haven't already pieced it together, I'm definitely a child of the hippie generation. <laughs> So my parents were never married, first of all, because they didn't really buy into this whole concept of traditional marriage. Um, and the fact that my mother was married to someone else might also have been a barrier. <laughs> but I'm sure that another really good reason for them not to get married is because my father was gay and remained gay until he died last year. So I'm grateful that they didn't try the marriage thing. There was a lot of fun and adventure in my childhood because of some of the non-traditional nature of what I experienced, and I'll get into that in a minute. But I gotta say that the primary thing coloring everything that was going on when I was growing up was my parents' drug and alcohol abuse. And it had some really big impacts on my early childhood. My mother will often brag about the amount of alcohol and even hallucinogens that she did while she was pregnant with both my brother and I. And she thinks that this is kind of entertaining and maybe even proof that all of our paranoia over drinking caffeine and taking Tylenol while we're pregnant is nuts. Um, I would suggest that she may have been taking a pretty profound risk with two really innocent people while they were in her womb. One of my earliest memories as a child is of being locked in a padded room 
with my brother. My mother lined the room with gym mats, and she would leave multiple baby body bottles filled with um, formula and infant cereal. They would be lined up on the windowsill. And she would leave my brother and I in this room for as long as a day and a half at a time. I would scream and I would cry and I would bang my fists and my head onto the floor, hence the pads. Um, I would do this until I would be dripping with sweat and completely exhausted. Then my brother would come over near me and rub my back until I would fall asleep. Over time of being in there, my diaper would become completely saturated and sagging, and sometimes the contents would even leak out and drip down my legs. When my mother would open the door, I felt ashamed for being angry and dirty. As a young adult, when I told my mother that I remembered that this had happened, I thought that she might just deny it, you know, but I had pretty clear memories of it because it wasn't an, a terribly infrequent thing that would occur. Instead, she defended her actions. She said that she and her friends were on the other side of the door drinking and drugging, so we were safe inside of that room. All I know is that it was a terrifying place to be. Another early memory that I have is when my father was sentenced to 20 years in prison for dealing a lot of marijuana to an undercover agent. I was only four years old, and this really began my obsession with doing anything that I could imagine that might keep my dad out of prison and alive. I was terribly depressed when he went to prison and my mother's response was to often berate me for acting like a baby. I was four. I think it might have been appropriate. But I was already learning how to be a pretty, um, you know, superhero adult. I um, remember dictating to my grandmother a letter to the warden of the prison where my father was incarcerated, explaining to the warden that I didn't know if I could live without my father because I felt so unloved without his presence in my life. Fortunately, there was a really amazing prison overcrowding problem going on in Ohio at the time, and my father was released on shock parole shortly before I turned five years old. In 1976, when I was seven years old, my parents moved to New Orleans. They didn't live in the same house, but they shared responsibility for raising my brother and I, so we would go back and forth together from one parent's house to the other. Shortly after we moved to New Orleans, my mother started bartending you know, pretty full time, so she did that shift of like 6 o'clock at night till you know, 2 o'clock in the morning or closing, which you know, can be a little later in New Orleans sometimes. And she would come home intoxicated and with strange men lots of nights. Um, even though my father had this parole hanging over his head, he continued to drink all the time and do drugs and deal drugs. In fact, I remember one time coming home from school, and it was right around Christmas time, and I walked into this big sort of double parlor in this house that we were living in 
It sounds really grand, but it wasn't. <laughs> anyway, walk into the double parlor, and there on the floor is what I think is like, oh, my God, we have like a 12-foot Christmas tree this year. But no, it was a mound of marijuana. Um, so, and also during this time, my father would periodically, I think probably just sort of lose it from all the drugs and alcohol that he was doing and make a lot of suicide attempts. So it was kind of scary. I mean, I lived in a, in a state of pretty much constant hypervigilance. I was always on guard. I was on the lookout for cops so that my father wouldn't get rearrested. I would size up every drunk stranger who came into the house to try and determine whether or not that person might be safe. I was on guard for my mother's um, persistent criticism. And I was really terrified once I started school that, that kids at school would come to realize how chaotic and insane and in some ways disgusting my home life was. And I was also always really protective of my dad in this strange kind of way, like I didn't want him to know that I had any problems because I was afraid that he would just blow his brains out if he knew how hard things were for me. My dad was the kind of drunk who would wake up in the morning and he would roll a marijuana joint before his feet would hit the floor and he'd smoke it, like the whole thing. I'd hear the lighter light up, I'd smell the smell of the marijuana and then he would walk to the refrigerator and you could hear like the click of the big refrigerator door opening and he would pull out a rolling rock and he would drink the entire rolling rock before that refrigerator door would ever even close, like you could hear the whole routine going on. Then he'd walk over and turn the coffee maker on and continue to, um, to drink beer in the kitchen while often making homemade French toast and eggs benedict. <laughs> and then by noon, he would be drinking gin and tonics. I didn't think that my father had a drinking problem because he was like really a lot of fun. <laughs> he was a really exciting person to be around and I realized much later, I had never seen him sober. So some of my fondest memories were of traveling down the Mississippi River on a 13 by 13 foot raft with my dad. We would, my father was a part of a theater company um, and we would start in Memphis, Tennessee and we would travel down the Mississippi River on this raft with a theater group of 13 other people and we would set up this absolutely amazingly beautiful red and yellow circus tent in these small towns all along the Mississippi River. I loved the costumes. We had all of these beautiful boas. I had sequin tap shoes that I loved to wear all the time, even to school. <laughs> And we had these really elaborate, amazing Balinese masks that were just so expressive and, and lovely. And I loved the roar of the crowd. I loved to hear these, just these, these wonderful small town southerners gasping in sort of shock and amazement over the shows that we would do and roaring with laughter. Summers on the river were filled with drama and adventure. We would camp out 
on sandbars along the Mississippi River. And when the tugboat captains would come down and see this raft of just hippie freaks, <laughs> they would have a blast with us just being like, y'all know what y'all are doing out here? But it was, it was really an adventurous and fun time in a lot of ways. But as we approached Baton Rouge every summer, my mood would begin to drift. I knew we were nearing the Crescent City, and that meant that I was returning to mom. My mother would go on massive binges. She would go through periods of not drinking, and then when she would drink, she would often just kind of disappear, leaving my brother and, al my brother and I alone for days at a time. She would rage when she was drunk, and she would rage when she was sober. I knew there was a problem with her, but I thought the problem was that she hated me. By the time I was a teenager, not only was my parents' disease clearly spiraling out of control, but so was I. I rarely went to school. I was starting to drink and drug with much older people. I lied constantly mostly because the truth was too shameful and painful to admit. I had sex with boys so that they would like me, and I felt terribly, terribly alone and scared. I was beginning to believe that I would never amount to anything. When I was 15 years old, a dear friend of my father's brought me to my very first Alateen meeting. You know how they say Al-Anon isn't for people who want it? It's for people who need it? Well, miracle of miracles, I was in enough pain when I walked into that room that there was no doubt that I needed it. Just that week, when she brought me into that meeting, my boyfriend had broken up with me. One of my closest friends had died of an overdose. My family had been evicted from our apartment, and my cat had burned to death in a fire. My life was totally out of control, and I couldn't imagine that there was any way out. Alateen was the first place in my life that anyone ever told me that I was the most important person in the room. That first night, I didn't believe it, <laughs> but I really loved hearing it. I was so relieved to find a room full of teens that were just like me. Over time, Alateen became a place where people's faces would actually light up when I walked into the room. Finally, I had found a place where I didn't have to lie or defend myself, where there were rules and boundaries, and I could feel safe. Just the other day, I was going through some Alateen literature for this meeting that Tricia mentioned that we just started up. And I came across a reading that I remember from my early days in Alateen, and I wanted to share it with you. And I guess, you know, for you guys just to think for a moment, I mean, I was raised in a completely atheist family. I was raised in a family where there weren't any conversations going on about joy or love. And coming across these kinds of readings really, you know, got a hold of me. So this one, starts, it says, just for today, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for life, a life with meaning in which I can be me, 
a life of courage to replace the fear. It feels so good to be young and alive, to carry my head high and to keep my mind clear so that I can see and enjoy the truly beautiful world in which you have placed me. Please don't ever let me take that for granted. Thank you, God, for love, for helping me to sow love where only hatred grew before, for helping me to understand my parents and others, showing me that no matter what they do, I can still love them. It is wonderful to know what love really is, to have that sense of hope which assures me that I don't have to be lonely anymore. Thank you, God, for joy, the kind of joy that wells up within me when I know that my life is in the hands of one who understands and cares as no other can, a joy that brings with it a beautiful feeling of inner peace. And thank you, most of all, dear God, for being the greatest friend a young person like me can ever have. So, I mean, it was like, I don't know, there was a commercial recently, and I don't remember what it was for, but, you know, they do this thing about, like, my mind was blown, and they go, like, you know? <laughs> and that's what it was like for me to be an Alateen. Like, my mind was just blown. Like, I, I, I kind of couldn't believe that I could change this perspective and really be grateful for the life that I was experiencing. And I had so many amazing relationships through the fellowship. My first sponsor taught me that although I couldn't control my parents' drinking, I could calm down and detach from the situation without having to react. I learned that my parents' shameful behavior did not belong to me. The first time I did a searching and fearless moral inventory, I listed my parents' shameful behavior. I really thought that those things were mine, you know, and being able to have this distinction of understanding that they do what they do, but I have my own life was a big deal. And I know many of us don't really get that lesson until we're many, many years older than I was at that time. My sponsor helped me to focus on my own behavior and see that I had the power to wake up each day and be a kind, honest productive human being. She taught me that nothing I had ever done or that my parents could ever do could ever alter the truth about who I really was. She, she would tell me over and over again, you are a divine child of God. You can be anything, you can do anything, and the program and God will give you all that you need. Well, at that time, I really still needed to get out of my parents' house. <laughs> and I didn't have very much experience with this newfound faith in a higher power. So when I was 16 years old, I ran away, I dropped out of high school, and I married an addict. I mean, you know, <laughs> you had to know that was coming. <laughs> so, you know, my will told me I could certainly take better care of myself than my parents did, and I wasn't wrong about that. But my will also told me that I could cure his disease, that I could whip this into shape. 
just give me a little time. I'll, I'll have it all under control. So fortunately, I mean, and really truly very fortunately, I married someone who was just an amazingly kind and gentle man. After we were married for a year, I became pregnant with our son. Six months later, my husband was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and within a year, he died. He was only 22 years old. That year was the toughest year of my life. I thought I had found a soft place to land, only to find my world spinning totally out of control once again. I had absolutely no control over my husband's desire to escape his pain with drugs and alcohol. And I was really, really struggling to stay present for our infant son. Thank God. Thank God for the program. My sponsor wrote down this prayer and gave it to me that year. And she would say, every day, no matter what, before your feet hit the floor, this is what you got to say. Dear God, please have me think as you would have me think, do as you would have me do, and be as you would have me be. Please remove every single character defect that stands in the way of my usefulness to you. I ask only for the knowledge of your will for me and the strength to carry that out. I trust you completely to teach me how to take care of myself. I surrender my actions to you and ask only that they please you. Lead me to gentler pastures and give me deep serenity that I might serve you most deeply. Amen. And I prayed that prayer. Just kept praying that prayer. After my husband's death, I was really depressed and I was really overwhelmed. But I was blessed with a loving sponsor, a beautiful son, a strong fellowship, and a really strengthening relationship with God that was keeping me afloat. One night, I recall, after a particularly difficult day, I was walking up the stairs to peek into my son's room before climbing into bed, and I simply collapsed on the steps as I was walking up. I could not handle the weight of my life. All of these questions just came rushing in, and it felt so oppressive. How am I going to survive this grief? How am I going to take care of this baby when my own parents were so messed up? How am I going to support us? I don't even know how to balance my own checkbook. And in that moment, I felt something that felt like a hand on my back, and I heard something, a voice, and that voice said, I am here You will never be alone again. I will never leave your side. I am God. And this was really the beginning of my spiritual awakening. Something began to crack open in me that night and in rushed this sense of safety and serenity. After my husband's death, it was extremely important for me to remember that, you know, like walking around in my own mind alone was a really bad idea. That my thinking had gotten me into a lot of really messed up situations in the past and left to my own devices, I could go right back there. 
And I didn't just go to 90 and 90. Went to 180 and 180 and then started over again. Fortunately, my sponsor got me really involved in service. From setting up chairs to being an intergroup rep, I got busy and I kept getting better and better. Then she had me get serious about sponsoring others. I couldn't have even imagined the way that being of service in this particular manner would completely transform how I saw myself in the world. I felt like my life couldn't be more of a disaster. I was 20 years old. I was a mother. I was a widow. I was a high school dropout. I didn't know how to balance my own checkbook. But my sponsees taught me that I was smart, I was dependable, I was wise, and I was important. I learned that I could have a major positive impact in the lives of others. At the time, one of my sponsors was attending Tulane University, and she suggested, you should apply. <laughs> I thought, you're nuts. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And she said, you are the smartest person I know. So I just walked into Tulane one day and said, I think it would be a really good idea for me to go to school here. And they agreed. <laughs> With the support of the friends that I had made in this fellowship, I graduated with honors and I went on to grad school. My son was growing and he was thriving and so was I. Because of Al-Anon, I felt comfortable being a valuable part of a community and I got really active in service work at my son's school. Because of Al-Anon, I knew that God loved me and all of you loved me, even if sometimes you didn't like me. <laughs> I started to draw healthier and healthier people into my own life. And because of Al-Anon, I developed the skills to do work that makes me incredibly proud every day. And it's in service to others. Because of all of you, I learned the tools to be a good mother and eventually the tools to be a really great wife. When my son was five years old, I met a really amazing man, a man that I can honestly say that if it weren't for this fellowship, I wouldn't have even had the courage to speak with, much less be able to form a healthy relationship with. Before Al-Anon, I would instinctively be drawn to the most narcissistic, self-centered man in the room, and I would make a beeline for them. And that was, you know, it would be pretty miserable. <laughs> but over time in Al-Anon, I developed a much higher taste when it came to relationship. I was in rooms with people all the time who, who treated me with dignity and respect and thought that I was a valuable person. So I'm going to tolerate that from people outside of the rooms. I, was, I, I learned in these rooms how to maintain boundaries with people while experiencing true intimacy and honesty with them. Al-Anon has really given me the tools to be able to love and support a truly healthy man who challenges me every day in a thousand ways to become a better and better person. So... Because of Al-Anon, I continue to strive for serenity even as my only treasured precious son struggles with his own addictions. The program constantly reminds me that feelings are not facts 
and in order to bear, in order to endure bearing witness to my son's struggle with addiction, I must have the support of others. I need to know that I'm not alone in my internal struggles. I need to be spiritually fit in order to go the distance with him and stay present, taking it one day at a time. There are days when it's tempting and easy to become hopeless and apathetic and even cynical. I mean, i got to say that after sitting in the rooms for 29 years, I thought maybe this wouldn't have to happen. <laughs> so, it's, it, you know, there are days where that's a little bit, that reality is a little tough to, to handle. One day when my son was once again missing in action, and I was really totally out of control, I made a call to a program friend, Kate. I remember pleading with Kate. How do I pray for this child when I'm not supposed to pray for specific outcomes? In her gentle voice, strong with experience, Kate began to tell me about a time when her daughter, Erin, was living on the streets and trading sex for drugs. Kate explained how she relied on the program to learn not to enable how to detach with love from her daughter's problems, and to cope with her own desperate impulse to continually rescue and caretake her daughter. She had to let Erin go and allow her to find her own recovery. Kate described to me how as her fears would resurface and get more intense, she would visualize her daughter, and in her mind's eye, she would place Kate in God's lap turning Aaron over to a power greater than herself who could do for Aaron what no earthly parent, however loving and dedicated, can ever do. So, you know, I, I was like, okay, well, let me think about that. <laughs> so I pondered my concept of God and how I might be able to turn my own child over to her care. I visualized God's love flowing in front of me like a majestic, beautiful river, which represented God's will. I thought about how sometimes I wade right in. I just wade right in, abandon myself to the care of God's protection without hesitation. But sometimes I just sit on the levee, stuck in my own self-will, watching the current flow right on by. Other times I like to step in ankle deep, have it my way and God's way. <laughs> Keep my will. And turn it over a little bit. Just a little bit to God. Or I come to God as I was that day, desperate, down on my knees, in complete surrender. In my mind's eye, I visualized wrapping my son in my arms and hugging him as hard as I could, kissing him on the forehead, tenderly whispering his name, grasping his hand, walking him down to the edge of that river, and tearfully accepting my limitations, setting him free into the river of God's will and God's love, who can take him someplace I never can. Unfortunately, the program doesn't promise us that if we work it, we'll break the multi-generational chain of addiction. (laughs) 
But I know that this program has given me the tools to pretty consistently maintain serenity, even in the face of my son's battle with addiction. I've definitely had moments of sheer desperation, acting from my own will, trying everything and anything to control my son's desire to use. I've also experienced moments of amazing grace, moments where I know his disease is not my fault and that I can maintain serenity whether he's using or not. Last year, my serenity was really put to the test. My father passed away after a grueling few months of repeated falls, massive abuse of narcotics, and pretty constant care provided to him by my husband and I. Two weeks after my father died, my husband and I decided that we would take, you know, like a little trip. And we were unpacking from a really lovely three days at the beach. We'd gotten home, and we were just beginning to unpack, and my cell phone rang. And it was an emergency room nurse explaining to me that my son had been in an automobile accident and that he was being transferred to a level one trauma center. She explained to me that his brain was swelling and that they would need to do surgery at another facility that they could not do at the hospital where he was initially brought. All I could think was, are you kidding me? Like, really, are you kidding me? Like, God, what? You know, seriously? Like, okay, I carried the weight for the last 45 years of my dad <laughs> and his addictions, and now this is raining down on me? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle it. As it turned out, what was going on was that my son had, was, was driving in this car, having an argument with his girlfriend. His girlfriend was driving, and he was the passenger in the car, and they were having an argument, and he said, I'm going to jump out of the car. And, of course, she said, you're not going to jump out of the car. Threw the car door open, and they were going somewhere between 55 and 65 miles an hour. Fortunately, they weren't going faster because they were just pulling on to the interstate. And... Um, and miraculously, I mean, he landed, you know, mostly in the grass, not totally on the concrete. He did have serious head injuries. I mean, there's no question about that. There were multiple subdural hematomas. There were multiple cracks in his skull, and there was some pretty serious swelling going on. And he had this massive short-term memory loss. So that for the first 10 days that he was in the intensive care unit, my husband and I would have to, it was like the worst Groundhog Day, you could ever imagine, you know, where like the same thing keeps happening over and over again. And so he would begin to sort of wake up and come to consciousness and go, oh my God, where am I? And so you'd be like, oh baby, you're in the hospital. Oh my God, what happened? Oh, well, you know, we don't really need to talk about that. No, no, what happened? What happened? Is Sam okay? Sam's girlfriend. Well, yeah, Sam's fine. Y'all were driving down the road. Must have had an argument. You through the car door open, he jumped out of the car, oh my God, oh my God, and then he'd be sobbing, crying, he'd be filled with shame. And then he'd go, where am I? And you'd start it over again. Um, so, miraculously, he has made an almost full recovery from his physical injuries. Unfortunately, despite our best efforts, and we've been at this now for a decade, he, reminds, he remains active in, addic in his addictions and continues to participate in a lot of really dangerous behavior. I continue to rely on this fellowship 
in order to maintain my own peace of mind. All that is asked of me, and all of us, right, is that we increase our conscious contact with the God of our understanding and ask for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. Each day I ask, have I done enough? Have I done the best that I can, understanding that my best fluctuates? If so, I've got to stop belittling myself and berating myself and trust that my desire to please God is enough. With all of you, I continue to clean house, trusting God, doing what is in front of me. That must be good, right? Might be enough. And there are definitely times where I know I am enough. And thankfully, I'm not alone. I have God, and I have all of you. Today, I'm far from perfect in working my own program. I often neglect to fully welcome newcomers. I still have amends that I avoid making, although I've gone through all 12 steps many times. <laughs> Some days I'm unwilling to follow my sponsor's suggestions. You know, she'll say do this, and I'll just say, no. No, thanks. <laughs> and still, I resist turning things over to God, even though I've learned, without a doubt, the pain is in the resistance, not in the surrender. But one thing I know for sure is that I'm grateful. I'm filled with gratitude. I'm filled with gratitude for all of the treasures of recovery that I have experienced in the last 29 years. And I'm inspired when it comes to giving to others. Before attending Al-Anon, I was lonely and I was isolated. Attending meetings and sharing the program helped me experience true intimacy for the first time in my life. I've learned how to ask for help from my higher power, from my sponsor, from the fellowship, and now I know it's time to give back. When I share these treasures of recovery, I'm filled with satisfaction. I attend meetings because I want them to be available to the families, like me, who still suffer. I accept a group, area, or district position, finding that my understanding of recovery and my abilities to work the program expand. Sponsoring others continually challenges me. <laughs> but it challenges me in amazingly miraculous ways. It challenges me to be diligent in working my own program and keeping the focus on me. Um, I learn so much from my sponsees. I learn how to share my experience, strength, and hope without attempting to control. I learn how to offer unconditional love and support. Um, and I'm constantly reminded of my relationship with my sponsees to let go and let God. Get out of the way and let them ho have their own experience of recovery. I truly understand that in order to keep these gifts of recovery, I must give them away. In fact, service in this program is probably what keeps me coming back more than anything else, and these opportunities for service are so important to people like me who had battered and degraded lives, like many of you. Um, 
I, I, I figure I probably would have gotten a little bored and stale in my recovery over this period of time without these really amazing challenges to keep me coming back and keep me really engaged in the rooms. So in conclusion, I just really want to thank all of you because tonight you've given me another opportunity to deepen my own recovery once again, and that's a really amazing gift. My hope for each of, all, each of you over this weekend is that you'll be present to one another, patient and loving with yourselves, and filled with an awareness of your individual and unique treasures of recovery. So I hope that you have a really awesome 40th Louisiana AFG convention. Thank you very much. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you very much. And now you've just experienced our first treasure of this convention. That was awesome. Now we're going to close our with the Lord's Prayer and then the Al-Anon Declaration, which you see it's written right there on the board. If anybody wants to take a look at that, we'll go uh, around the room in a circle. And it says here, please be reminded, it starts with, let it begin with me, before we say the declaration. Thank you.